we are shocked in a lot of bad ways in this world. Calamities and disasters appear out of nowhere. People we trusted betray us. Our solid footing goes liquid. So it's notable when you're shocked in a good way. That's just what happened to me five years ago. I had been in Charlotte, North Carolina for the trial convention of the Advent Christian General Conference. It was my first time attending and I was pretty impressed. Our gathering was held in the impressive Renaissance Hotel and Advent Christian leaders from across the nation had come to do the business of the denomination. All of it was ultimately orchestrated by the man at the denomination's helm, our executive director, Steve Lawson. He's the man we teasingly call the Advent Christian Pope, since he's basically the pastor of the denomination, leading us forward into the future. I had met him before the convention, and I had already decided that I had liked him as our executive director, but it was at the end of the convention that my respect for him grew tenfold. Some of my younger pastor buddies and I were helping clean up at the end of the convention, carrying items into a moving truck to be brought back to the denominational headquarters. It wasn't exactly what you'd call fun, and it certainly wasn't something you'd imagine anyone who had a big hand in leading the convention would want to do. And yet, there Steve Lawson was, shoulder to shoulder with us, packing this truck. Now, manual labor isn't part of the job description for executive director, and I wouldn't have thought twice if he decided to head home. But by sticking around, by pitching in, he showed that this work wasn't beneath him. He was ready to be a servant. He wasn't just skipping out because of his rank. Seeing this made me all the more ready to follow him as the leader of our denomination. And I'm so glad to follow him as our executive director. Since the end of Matthew 19, Jesus has been impressing upon his disciples that they must stop obsessing over ranking themselves. They want to sort out who is top dog in God's kingdom. They keep referring back to their resume of all that they've left behind to follow Jesus. Jesus responds by telling them the last will be first. And by sharing a parable about laborers who worked all day receiving the same pay as those hired at the end of the day. Verses 17 through 28, we see Jesus' commentary along these lines continued. But now, he includes himself in the mix. But first, looking at verses 17 through 19, we're reminded of the direction that Jesus is heading. He has left Galilee, as was told us in Matthew 19, to head into Judea, and he's on his way to Jerusalem. It says he's going up to Jerusalem, not because Jerusalem is in the north from there, but because Jerusalem is on a hill. They call it a mountain. And it doesn't, if you went there, you wouldn't, be, you wouldn't be like, oh, wow, this is a big mountain. But when you're out in that terrain, it's a mountain, and they call it Mount Zion. 
And so they talk about ascending, going up to the temple, going up to Jerusalem. So he's on his way up to Jerusalem. And as he's making his progress towards Jerusalem, he takes his 12 disciples aside. He has something to tell them. Now this is a little bit different because in many of the other instances in which Jesus is talking, he's talking to more than just his 12 disciples. Remember, he has a lot of disciples, at least like in the order of like 70, depending on whether some have gone or gone. Um, but he has a huge number of disciples, but these 12 are especially set apart. And he's taking them aside because he's going to tell them something that the rest may not be ready to hear. Now, in the Gospel of Mark, we learn that there was probably some um, rumblings among the disciples about the wisdom in Jesus going to Jerusalem at this time. And Mark 10, verses 32 through 34, says they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. And we're not given any real explanation here as to why they were astonished or why they were afraid. Um, John Calvin in his commentary, though, suggests that it was because they heard that um, some of the leaders in Jerusalem had it out for Jesus. So they're a little bit worried. Um, so Jesus takes his disciples aside and he basically confirms their fears in some ways. Um, he says, yes, the Son of Man is going to go to Jerusalem and there he's going to be condemned by the Jewish relig religious leaders crucified by the Gentiles, but he's also going to be resurrected. So that's the good news, the really good news, that he's going to be resurrected. But um, you wouldn't blame the disciples if they kind of got distracted by the being crucified part of things. Now this is the first time in which he's explicitly mentioned that he's going to be crucified. He said that he's going to be killed before. In Matthew 16, you'll remember, he says this and then Peter says, no way that's going to happen. And then he says, get behind me, Satan. Matthew 17, he uh, says that just as John the Baptist suffered, he was going to suffer, and the disciples were grieved. Now, here we're not told the disciples' reaction. Maybe it's the same as those two previous times. Maybe they're so convinced that this couldn't possibly be what's in store for Jesus that they've decided that maybe he's speaking metaphorically or something. Um, he has also previously spoken about his resurrection. We see in Matthew 12 and Matthew 16, he talks about how um, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man is going to be in the heart of the earth. Now, something that's easy for us to kind of skip over here when Jesus is telling his disciples all this, is just the significance of the fact that Jesus knows that this is what is going to happen to him. No mere human being would be able to have that kind of insight unless, at the very least, God revealed it to, to them. So at bare minimum, we're seeing here that Jesus is a great prophet and that he can predict this, but obviously there's more than this entailed based by, on Jesus' own testimony about himself. When we look back to the Old Testament, we see 
um, that all of this was going according to God's plan. And this is what, um, in the book of Acts, it says that none of this, anything, all this that happened to Jesus was according to God's plan. It says, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. This is what Peter told the Jewish crowds when he was preaching to them after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. He said, God had this in the workings all along, and we see this, as I was just saying, in the Old Testament in Daniel 9.26. Daniel 9.26 it says, after the 62 sevens, the anointed one, which is just another English red rendering of Messiah, because if you go into the original language of Hebrew, it says Mashiach there, will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. And then you look in Isaiah 53.10. It says there, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So both in Daniel and Isaiah, you have suffering promised for this Messiah, for this coming suffering servant. But you also have a hint of... uh, Jesus' coming resurrection, where in the latter part of verse 10 in Isaiah 53, it says that he's going to make his life an offering for sin, and yet he will see his offspring and prolong his days. How does that work out if you're dead? It's giving a hint that he's going to be raised from the dead. So Jesus understands that he is marching to his death. He's not just merely speaking metaphorically here, but he also knows that his resurrection will follow. Jew and Gentile, all of humanity, will be implicated in his crucifixion. No one will have clean hands, as much as Pilate tries to clean his hands of it. Pressing forward, he intends to take what they intend for evil and turn it for the redemption of the world. It's interesting what follows from this little aside that Jesus has with his disciples. We see in verses 20 through 23 that the mother of James and John, that's Zebedee's sons, comes to Jesus to make a case for giving her sons special privilege in the kingdom of God. Now, this is an unusual behavior on the part of mothers. I mean, we, we would all expect kind of moms to kind of advocate for their kids even nowadays, but you go back to 1 Kings, and in 1 Kings 1, we find Bathsheba going to King David and advocating for her son Solomon to be the one who would become king. Now, some interesting things here about um, James and John's mother. If we look at... Um, I guess I didn't put that slide in there, but it's if you it's interesting if you look between the th- three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I mean Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, actually, it might include John, but in any case, between three of the gospel accounts, it 
we have kind of corroborating testimony that would indicate that the name of James and John's mother was Salome, and that Salome is in fact the sister of Mary. And so this would make, Sal, so this would make James and John's mother Jesus' aunt, and James and John his cousins. So this is a theory. It's not, you know, it's, it's not rock, rock solid, but there's good reason to believe that this is the case. Now, they don't make a whole bunch of this in the Gospels, I think, because I don't think James and John have an interest of trying to kind of put themselves in this privileged position after the fact, after Jesus has died and raised from the dead. They're not trying to make it all about them. But we can kind of, it's interesting to consider this possibility because it kind of puts them in kind of pole position to kind of gain favor. Um, their mother is so intent that she comes to Jesus kneeling and asks him, saying, Grant that one of these two, two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at the left in your kingdom. Now, when we hear that, when we see all this playing out, kind of our initial instinct might be to be critical. It's like, what are you thinking, you know, going to Jesus, asking for privileged positions, etc., etc. But there's something commendable here. It's apparent that the mother of Zebedee and also James and John, because they're there with her and she's just kind of acting as an advocate for them. It's apparent that all three of them truly believe that Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God. That there are really positions to give when, superficially speaking, there's nothing about Jesus' ministry or what he's been saying that would say, oh, he's obviously going to throw over the Romans. It's not like he's been collecting arms and soldiers and things of this nature. But they believe. Um, and sometimes I think we can kind of lack that sort of confidence and faith in the reality of the kingdom. We just kind of make this fuzzy spiritual reality instead of the very concrete reality that they were anticipating. Now they're anticipating it sooner than it was to come. They were expecting the Romans to be overthrown and all of that, but um, that does not, the fact that they were wrong on the timeline does not diminish the fact that the kingdom of God is real and is coming, that Jesus is going to return and he's going to establish his kingdom here on earth. So we should have that same sort of confidence that they have. Now, the reason why they're probably even thinking along these lines is because Jesus has already promised the disciples that they would sit on 12 thrones in Matthew 19, 28. And so James and John's mother here is just kind of upping the ante by saying, okay, so of those 12 thrones, can they sit on your right and on your left? Jesus' response isn't to be critical about you know, her perception of the reality of the kingdom, but just to say that you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink that I'm going to drink? Now at this time he's not talking to the mother, he's turned his attention to James and John because they're standing right there. It's funny because for all his words of warning about what awaits him 
and about what it means to be one of his disciples, James and John still haven't seemed to have grasped that this isn't going to be a picnic. He asked if they'd be willing to drink the cup, and they said that they would be. Now this cup that he's asking if they'd be willing to drink is the same cup that he talks about in Matthew 26, 39. He says, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. He's going to a cross. He's going to Jerusalem to, to face this condemnation. This is the cup that awaits him. And they say, we can. Again, there's something commendable in this in that they're like raring to go. But again, it doesn't seem like they fully comprehend exactly what they're committing themselves to. Especially since the fact that when Jesus is betrayed by Judas and he's prosecuted and put on the cross, um, we don't see James anywhere. They're kind of hiding in the background. Now notice that Jesus says in verse 23, he doesn't say that, well, actually you can't drink the cup, as as though he's the only one that can drink. He says, you will indeed drink from my cup. So what does this mean? Does this mean that James and John's death will be sacrificial in the way that Jesus' death is sacrificial? No, it doesn't doesn't mean that. If you go to Hebrews 10.10, the writer of Hebrews testifies, he says, we've been been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. That's it. Jesus is the only sacrifice that is necessary. None other is needed. So what is it about Jesus' suffering that makes it uniquely different It makes it different than James and John's suffering so that he's able to save us, whereas James and John's suffering doesn't save anybody. Well, the difference is is that Jesus is a perfect man. He's a perfect human being. James and John are not perfect human beings. They can't break the curse of sin. They've already given in to it. They also can't match the sacrifice, the costliness of what Jesus endures because they are not God. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is God and yet He went to a cross. There can be no greater sacrifice than this. So there's a real difference between Jesus and James and John in terms of the value and effect of their deaths. And yet, Jesus does tell them, you you will indeed drink from my cup. And we see that this is true. In Acts 12, it's, it's recorded how James was beheaded. And then when we get to the book of Revelation, we hear about how John was exiled on the island of Patmos. And he probably suffered a good bit before he even got there. Some legends say that he was boiled in a vat of oil and somehow survived miraculously. But that's just that's a tradition. We don't know if that's real or not. But we can count on the fact that he suffered a good bit before they decided, let's just exile this guy on Patmos. So 
what's true for them, that they are assured by Jesus that they will partake in this cup of suffering, is also assured and true for us all. Jesus' death on the cross doesn't remove us from participating in suffering in his life. Quite the opposite. Jesus invites us into the suffering of the cross. And Jesus' cross is good news for our suffering because it brings meaning to it which would otherwise be absent because it would be without hope. Because you never just have the crucifixion alone. You always have crucifixion with resurrection. If you have crucifixion without resurrection, then it's a tragedy. There is no hope. But with resurrection, it's made meaningful. And the same is held out before us, too, that we suffer for our faithfulness, but we have the assurance of salvation and of redemption. Now, Paul talks about this in Romans 8.17. He says, Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If we indeed, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So Paul's basically saying here, it's part of the part of the package. If you're going to trust in Jesus, if you're going to follow in Jesus, you're going to inherit his reward, but you're also going to inherit the suffering that he endured. Peter says that it should be a point of rejoicing our participation in the sufferings of Christ. He says, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So it's almost like Peter is saying, it's like the more you suffer, the more just overwhelmingly joyous it's going to be when he appears in your fi- and it's going to prove that it was all worth it. More and more than worth it. Now, Jesus has told us that this is the cost of following him in Matthew 10.38. He says, Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And in Matthew 16.24, he says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. But again, and this is important to to remember what's been said in Hebrews 10.10. We've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We're not saved by our suffering. We're not saved by whatever sacrifices that we make. We're saved by the sacrifice of Christ alone once and for all. So here in Matthew 20, Jesus has confirmed to James and John that they will drink from his cup. They will participate in his sufferings. And yet, this isn't going to guarantee them any special seating arrangements. He says, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. And we have to pay careful attention here. Jesus isn't denying that there are positions to the right and to the left. What he's saying is is that he's not going to be just dishing these out like political favors at a whim. 
Because these are things that have been ordained eternally from the beginning. That have been conspired by God from all eternity. Later on in the book of in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew 25:34, Jesus indicates that these plans have been around for a while. He says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. So God has already known how this was all going to play out. He knows all the seating arrangements. This isn't something that Jesus is just going to dish out because his aunt came trying to seek some favors for his cousins. So what Jesus is doing here by saying that these places belong to those for whom they've been prepared by my Father, what he's doing here is not denying his own divinity. What he's doing is preserving the unity of the Godhead, of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. By deferring to the Father, he's indicating that he's sharing in the will of the Father, so that you don't have the competitions of wills, where it's like, okay, I know my dad wants to give these seats to somebody else, but I'm going to give them to James and John. No, he says, we're on the same page. This has been established from the beginning. There's no competing agendas in the Trinity. So, as for James and John's request, their agenda to secure seats of favor is left disappointed by Jesus' response. They'll share in his cup, but they're not promised premier status. In verses 24 through 27, we learn that somehow or another, the rest of the disciples heard about this request and were pretty ticked off. Now, maybe part of this is because James and John are Jesus' cousins, and so they're kind of jealous of the fact that they are trying to use that relation to gain some positions for themselves. Um, but we also know that probably all of them would have loved to have these privileged positions in the kingdom. And this explains Jesus' response to them, starting in verse 25. His response basically indicates he knows what's going on in all their hearts. He says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The picture of power that was in the disciples' minds had been painted by the Roman Empire. It was a picture of brutal domination and a picture that would lead them to believe that in order to kind of establish yourself in life, you need to put yourself in a position where you could boss people around and have them serve you hand and foot. Basically, their hope at this moment is to fight fire with fire. All right, The Romans have come with their strong authority. Well, we're going to overcome them by our own strong authority. 
What Jesus says here is that they've got to think about power in a completely different way. Because the kingdom of God is completely different than the kingdoms of this world. It's completely different than the, than the world of the rulers of the Gentiles. He tells them, this might be how they do things, but it's not how you're going to do things. Not so with you. In order to be great in God's kingdom, you need to be a servant. Now, I've talked about this before, about how God is not against greatness. Striving for greatness is not a bad thing. But in order for it to be a good thing, we have to completely alter our vision of greatness. Being great doesn't look like bossing people around. It looks like serving someone. It looks like being humble. And probably from the worldly outlook, at some points, doing tasks that would seem humiliating given your status. Now Jesus has already been telling the disciples that this is exactly what is expected of those who are members of God's kingdom. In Matthew 18.3, says, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So kind of keying on in that idea of little children, we go over to the Gospel of Luke, which is kind of a parallel to what Jesus is saying here about a different vision of what it means to be a leader in God's kingdom. And he says, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. So basically, they should be, should be like a child. And the one who rules like the one who serves. So we kind of have a picture of what Jesus means when he's talking about being childlike. It's being willing to serve. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. So Jesus is using this table example, and then he basically turns the table right over. Because he says, well, isn't it the people who sit at the table that are most important? And they're all like, yeah. All, and he says, well, I'm not sitting at the table. I'm serving. What does that mean? He's trying to lead the disciples to see that he is the example of greatness as he takes up this role of a suffering servant. Jesus explicitly sets forth this example in John 13, verses 13 through 15. He says, You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. So Jesus is giving some specific actions, like washing feet, to kind of point the disciples in the direction that they should go and making their lives one of service to others. But it goes even deeper than that. 
goes beyond just the actions that Jesus takes during the course of his earthly ministry to the very substance of his incarnation, the fact that the Son of God would become a man for our sakes. In Philippians 2, verses 5-7, through Paul points to this as a source for our example. He says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. See, if it was up to us as humans and we had that kind of status, we'd use it to our advantage all day. Jesus did not. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Peter, by the time he's further along in ministry, has picked up on the fact that this is the call that all Christian leaders have by the instructions that he gives in 1 Peter 5, 2-3 to the leaders and pastors of the church. He says, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. When it comes to God's kingdom, when it comes to the body of Christ, anyone who serves in a leadership position comes in that position not so that they can be served, but so that they can serve. And so that they can serve as an example to those that they are serving. And when we get... And we look, when we look across some of these New Testament letters, we see how they're started out. I'm not going to read all of them, but I just highlighted how they started out. Simon Peter, a servant. James, a servant. Jude, a servant. That's the highest title they can claim because that's the title that Jesus took for himself when he came to earth. And there's no greater honor that they could have than to be a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus' service comes with a purpose. Yes, by humbling himself and teaching others, he freed, he freed people from the do- domination of legalism, the Pharisees, and he healed people. But Jesus came for much more than that. When we look here at verse 28, Jesus testifies. He says he came to give his life as a ransom for many. You should underline that verse. That's one of the most clear testimonies that Jesus gives about the significance behind his coming death and resurrection. And Paul makes clear this significance when he writes in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He is rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that through you, through His poverty, might become rich. He's not talking about material wealth here. He's talking about wealth according to God's kingdom, which will involve some material flourishing, but so much more than that. It's spiritual flourishing. It's about gaining eternal life. 
And we've already referred back to to Isaiah 53, but when you start in the Old Testament and you go through to the book of Revelation, we just see testimony again and again about what Jesus is coming to do. Isaiah says, My righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. In Matthew 26, Jesus talks about how his blood is going to act as the blood of a new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In Romans 4, Paul says that Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. And you, you just keep going. You go into 1 Timothy. And Paul is testifying how Jesus did give himself as a ransom for all people, just as Jesus has said here in Matthew 20. Peter says that we weren't redeemed by silver or gold. We could never buy our way to salvation. And the only way that our salvation has been purchased was by the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Had to be perfect, like I was saying earlier. And finally, you get to Revelation. And the song of heaven testifies of the Lamb of God. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's exactly what Christ has accomplished. He's made himself a servant for all of mankind so that we might be saved if we respond and trust in him. In the space of 11 verses, Jesus has revealed something powerful to us. He's completely upended the power scale. Not just by pure say-so, but by setting himself up before us as a true standard of greatness. His work to ransom us is at the very same time the example, the model, the outcome God has in mind for our own lives. God is redeeming us in Jesus to be made like Jesus. The Son of God became a servant for our sakes, and so we too have been called to become servants in God's kingdom. Following Jesus, Christian disciples focus on the call to serve rather than focusing on what they think they deserve. Because greatness in God's kingdom looks like the self-forgetfulness of a servant. And there are three basic implications that I think this has for us at Rockland Community Church. Unfortunately, I put it backwards, so I'm just going to put them all up there. We are called to greatness, but greatness looks like the suffering servanthood of Jesus. Now, I think the, imp- the import that this has for us as a congregation is that we shouldn't judge ourselves by worldly stand- standards of success. As though we've got to have huge, bustling crowds coming through here in order to be a successful church. Now, I'd love it if that happened. 
But our metrics of winning are not the metrics of the world. What is most important is being faithful to what God has called us to do. Being willing to submit to what He's called us to do. Not being concerned with applause or recognition. The second thing that I think should become apparent to us is that we need members of our church family to aspire to be servant leaders for our congregation. I think there's a dangerous trap that we can fall into. Sometimes out of a place of kind of false humility, we can say, oh no, I couldn't possibly serve in a position like that. And because we're always in this position of denial, saying like, oh, I couldn't possibly do that. Not because you're too busy or something, something like that, but be, just be like, oh no, that's too much. I, 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 I'm not good enough to do something like that. Sometimes we can kind of take on that mindset and we can think that, oh, this is me being faithful to Christ. But it's not. Because it's not about you. It's about the power of Christ within you. He's able to take common people. I mean, look, he took fishermen. And he changed the world through them. We need to focus on God's power and the purposes that he has instead of being concerned about what native powers we have. And we also have to exchange our purposes for his purposes. This is what it means to be a servant. Sometimes we have to step back and say, am I, real, am I giving greater priority to my life plans than maybe the life plans that God has for me? The plans that He has for our church family here. And lastly, we need our church family to represent Jesus' model of servant leadership in the home and in the workplace. What this looks like is spouses in your marriages. You've got to be serving one another. Shouldn't it be that one of you gets to sit back in a lazy boy while everyone else serves you? I'm not putting one spouse or the other by gender in that seat because both can happen. We're there to serve each other. Parents, don't abuse your power. Your kids are not your slaves. You need to be willing to work alongside them. Model to them what it means to serve the family's needs. Because ultimately what you're trying to model for them is that attitude of being a servant. And so for you children, for you kids, you're in a natural position to begin working towards that kind of character that Jesus is calling us to because you're put in a position in your home where you can help your family by submitting to some of the requests that your parents give when they say, 
clean up your clothes or go mow the lawn or pull the weeds, even though I hated pulling weeds. But it's a way that they seem like insignificant things. But so did washing feet seem like an insignificant thing. Jesus wasn't better than that. And so you can't think to yourself, I'm better than this. We've been all called to follow the example of of Christ. In your workplace, it can be popular to become belligerent and kind of throw your weight around and like, I'm going to get it my way and stuff. Kind of pull your rank. We can't do that for followers of Jesus Christ. We have to be really mindful of the example that we put forth at work. If somehow you're able to kind of question your coworkers and say, do you think I'm any different than anyone else in the office? And what would they say? Would they, would they think like, oh yeah, you're really different and it's apparent that it's because of your faith in Christ? Or would they just think you're like the rest and your faith is about as consequential as being a fan of the Red Sox? There's nothing worse than saying we're followers of Jesus Christ and then acting in a way completely opposite to that. It shows us to be hypocrites and it suggests that Christ has no transforming power, which is terrible because He does have the power to utterly transform us. We need to use these positions that we have for others when we're in leadership positions to take care of our workers if we're like really at the top or for co-workers to help each other in our work. We need to present an entirely different value system from the world. The value system would say, avoid being a servant at all costs. Exchanging it and putting forward in place the servanthood of Jesus. Now, none of this comes to us easily. But it is the way of Jesus Christ. It is the way which led Him to go from heaven to a manger. And from Galilee to Judea onto Jerusalem to die on a cross for our sakes. We cannot embrace the benefits of the cross while avoiding the cross in our own lives. We are called to share in the cup. Not because we are saved by becoming servants, but because we are saved in Jesus Christ to become servants. Becoming like Him in all things. In His life, in His death, in His resurrection. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank You for the salvation that has been given to us in Jesus. As much, Father, as we give thanks that we've been saved from destruction and we've been given eternal life through Him. Father, we, help, we pray that You would help us to see 
what he's come to save us for. That Jesus has come to save us, to redeem us, to become like himself. A servant. One who is not trying to step on the heads of others to make their way to the top of the pile, Father. The ones who are willing to wash the feet of others. Father, please make us like Him. And by being like Him, Father, help us to act as a living testimony to the truth of who He is. The Messiah, the promised one who takes away the sins of the world. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offered to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Scituate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Scituate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.